Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 41. I'm sure you've heard of the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's a good saying, and it applies well to much in life. And it applies to the Kennedy assassination research, too. Beverly Oliver is captivating, and let's face it, a lot more interesting to listen to than me talking about the downward angle of a shot coming from the Sixth Floor Depository. And it gets maybe even a little kookier in this episode today with Badge Man and Gordon Arnold. But don't confuse the entertaining nature of the testimony with your search for the truth. In episodes 39 and 40, Oliver adds to the narrative in a very rich way, but she also muddies the waters more than a tad. I'm not telling you what to believe or not to believe. You have to decide on that. But we are going to review a lot of evidence. We already have. And believe me, there is lots more, and it's going to get progressively murkier as we go. And one bias that we all have as humans, and sometimes it's quite subtle, is that over a long period of relationship with any person or any topic or anything that constitutes something tangible or intangible in our minds around which to form an opinion... Well, it becomes subject to the cumulative emotional biases that build up in our minds in response to how we personally have reacted over time, reacted to each topical stimulus as it occurs, stimulus that can be either positive or negative around the subject. And let's face it, these are biases that can and do sway us. So, simply put, regarding the JFK assassination, we might just become, at some point, say, a conspiracy advocate. In other words, we might have heard enough. We might have passed over the Rubicon, so to speak. Too many coincidences or too many convincing rule-outs. Whatever it was for you personally when listening to all of this. You know, it might have been based on an individual fact or cumulatively based on the impact of all that you have heard. But however you got there... There is no going back. And when that happens, evidence is then seen in a different light. Evidence contrary to your thesis is minimized or even ignored. And evidence supporting your now preformed conclusion, uh, conspiracy in my example, well, that is what is now emphasized in your mind. And evidence in that case is even mentally repackaged so that the peg can fit into the hole, so to speak, so that the facts can match the circumstance. Look, it happens all the time, and I mean in real life, and regarding justice and the law. In courtrooms all around the country, good men and women are sometimes wrongly convicted, and bad men and women sometimes escape the reach of the law, all based on this subtle but powerful impact that shapes our thinking. Why am I bringing this up right here and now? Well, to me, presumably, that should be obvious and easy to understand if you've been listening along over this long stretch of episodes, and especially after 39 and 40. 
As a group of jurors, we are trying to stay objective, and you are relying on me to have a reasonable approach to presenting material on this podcast. You have to maintain some level of confidence in that. Otherwise, it just becomes a show. And that was not, and is not, the intention of this podcast. Although I must admit, I do want it to be entertaining too. That is part of holding your attention. So by definition, that aspect is important. For those that have really gotten interested in listening in, I get feedback from you mostly via email or text, and especially from friends in that same category that I have known for years. Many of them are anxious to hear what I really think, who really did it, and maybe it's a good marketing element of the podcast that I keep saying that I'm not going to reveal what I really think until the end. Well, the truth is that I can't reveal it until the end because I don't have a solid opinion on exactly what happened here and who did it. Not yet, anyway. So there, I've said it. Look, in truth, I may never have one. I've been looking at this stuff for 30 years. No doubt, after all that time, I do have a progressively more expansive understanding of it all. All that is not still hidden, I mean. I am confident of that. I am also humble enough about this whole topic to know that I don't know what I don't know about this topic. But I can tell you that when putting together these episodes, I have at times been both an ardent conspiracy theorist and, at times, been quite a skeptic. And in those moments, I have succumbed to the more simple and elegant conclusion that Oswell did it and did it alone. I am, frankly, just not decided yet. And I think that really is a good thing for you as a listener. In terms of what I will present and how I will continue to present it on this podcast. But I still do promise to tell you exactly what I think once and when we get to the very end. You might be surprised at how that turns out. While I was eating a sandwich recently and reading some material on Oswald for a later episode, one thing that came to mind, one thing that continues to strike me is how often and how easy it was for Oswald to lie, and lie plainly and boldly. He didn't just start on the day he was arrested for the murders. His exit from Russia was full of lies to the authorities, and there are other documented circumstances too. Well, maybe the exit from Russia wasn't the best example. Others might lie too if that is what it took to get out of the Soviet Union in that era after getting into such a pickle in the first place. We'll get to that hopefully in another episode. <laughs> Don't you love that line from me? Okay, before I start to wander, uh, to continue about Oswald here, there is something about that character flaw in him that strikes me. He lied in so many different situations and circumstances and about little things where there was no real gain to lie. Or so it seems. Was it just his nature? Perhaps a trait that came from his own simple history? Perhaps his days of school truancy in New York? Or was it part of his covert nature because he was doing something covert within the government? Or its rogue elements, anyway. Or maybe just because he was a sociopath of sorts and a plain old murderer, too, seeking his 15 minutes of fame. 
How sad in so many ways, if that was really it. But it could have been. Maybe the Warren Commission really did get that part right. You know, there's a great saying that goes with that one. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. (laughs) Well, at this point, I'm not going to speculate anymore or reveal any more of what I think personally. I think it's time to get back to the facts. But what we all have to do is to continue to keep an open mind. Listen to all the evidence as objectively as we can and be ready to throw out some of the evidence because it's just not credible. But as I said at the very outset of this podcast episode, when it's all said and done, we need to do our best to hold on tightly to the baby and keep it in our hands. And then just let the bathwater go its merry way. About 16 feet north of the southeast corner of that stockade fence, they see some guy, they say, with a uh, uniform on and he has a badge. And they call him the badge man and they say he's the grassy knoll assassin. Without further ado, let's listen to episode 41. Badge Man is a name given to an unknown figure that is perhaps visible within the famous Mary Mormon photograph that was taken that day in Dealey Plaza. As we have already discussed on a previous episode, Mary was on the south side of Elm Street facing the grassy knoll, and the picture was taken right at the moment that the president was hit with the fatal shot. The picture reveals in the background a hazy view of the grassy knoll and the area around the picket fence. Perhaps more precise calculations show that the Polaroid picture was taken somewhere between Zapruder frames 315 and 316, or about two or three frames after Z313, which is the stipulated Zapruder frame number at which the fatal shot was fired. That's about one-tenth of a second afterward. That picture should have solved the case. But like I said, when we first brought the Mormon photograph into the narrative during these episodes, well, it was a Polaroid. If it had only been Phil Willis's 35mm camera, maybe things would be different. But let's not put the cart before the horse here. Because it was a Polaroid, the fact is, it wasn't a very clear picture. Compare it in relative terms to today's 4K picture clarity and just start working backwards and go a long way. Honestly, it wasn't even as clear as some battlefield pictures taken in the Civil War. It was a 20th century emerging technology that was an advancement of sorts in convenience. But it was a giant step backwards in picture quality. And because of that, it eventually gave way when better technologies came along. But nevertheless, it's what we got for this exercise. You and I casually staring at the Mormon photograph would probably not see anything in the background. At the knoll, that is. But as you can imagine, others have stared at that photo for thousands of hours and subjected it to an incredible amount of scrutiny and testing. The Mormon photograph, interestingly enough, was not included in the Warren Commission report. 
One has to speculate that maybe someone at the commission already had contemplated the potential for controversy. Although the poor rendering of all the photographs included in the report that resulted from the printing process itself, well, I'm pretty sure no one would have challenged it. And in fact, it may have ironically been better used at that moment for solid evidence that there clearly was no shooter on the knoll right at the moment the fatal shot occurred. But this is the JFK assassination story, and you can't even make this stuff up. So let me tell you what actually happened. In 1982, Gary Mack, the longtime curator and archivist for the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza, you know, the former Texas School Book Depository, Mack was the first person to claim discovery of the Badge Man figure. In Mack's visual interpretation, a uniformed police officer can be seen standing behind the stockade fence, with his face obscured by a muzzle flash, but a small, bright object is visible on his chest. The moniker itself, that is the name Badge Man, derives from that bright spot on the chest, which is said to resemble a gleaming badge. Shortly, you'll hear Mr. Mack in his own words talk about the moment at which he began to see this in the photograph. What I was looking at, to a lot of people, might have just been like looking at an ink blot or something. And all of a sudden, I started to see eyes and ears and forehead and hair. And little by little, the pieces of this uh, image started to make sense to me. Uh, and, and that's when I first called Jack. And uh, with his photographic work doing the blow-ups, we could see more and more and more detail. And at one point, we realized that this fellow was probably wearing a police uniform or some type of uniform that was close enough to what the Dallas police were wearing was, uh, so that he could pass as a police officer. And really, that, to me, that was the one scary moment because that was such a brilliant plan a police officer in that location, away from where people were watching, if anyone did see him, they wouldn't think anything about it. Because there were police in that area, although nowhere near where we see this guy. So this guy was an imposter. And I got chills then. Because that was the realization that this was a very cleverly, well-thought-out plan. You have to keep in mind that the Mary Mormon picture is about this size. And the area that we're dealing with is about a quarter-inch square. So the area that Badge Man appears in is very tiny. And that's why the attempts to enhance it photographically have been very difficult uh, over the years. No good deed goes unpunished. Mack, as the curator of the museum, was a well-respected assassination researcher. But this decision to embrace the concept that there was a man in the Mormon picture on the knoll, well, I kind of liken it to the amateur who buys powerful fireworks and sets them off in front of his house on the 4th of July. It's fun, and everyone loves the experience, but you have to be careful not to have one of those rockets end up on your neighbor's roof. It's an unintended consequence that is potentially inevitable from the moment you light the first one. As you might expect, Mac was not the first formal group to look at the photograph and try to find more. If you're like me, the first question I asked was about the House Select Committee's photographic panel and what they thought and did. You see, that took place some three years earlier in 1979. And if there was one area that the House Select Committee advanced the ball in, it was certainly in the photographic realm. With Robert Groden and the team looking at much more of the photographic evidence in much different ways. 
using experts and more recent photographic analysis technology to glean more. Remember, as we learned in a prior episode, the House Select Committee went into their endeavor with high hopes that this arm of the new investigation might blow the case wide open. Unfortunately, as you know, it did not. And in the case of the Mormon photograph, the House Select Committee concluded that there likely was no human figures behind the fence in the photograph. That whatever was there in the picture, well, it was basically a photographic artifact, the definition of which you've heard in a prior episode. But, simply put, it was not a person. But Mac was determined, and he knew what his mind had begun to see and recognize in that picture. Okay, back to why I told the fireworks story. Gary Mack got the ball rolling on Badge Man, but other assassination researchers soon joined in the hunt. And then permutations and combinations of assassination theories began to proliferate around this finding. And then this is where the fireworks hit the neighbor's roof. Speculation about the Badge Man figure helped create conspiracy theories regarding a plot made by members of the Dallas Police Department to kill President Kennedy. And of course, that came with a concomitant claim that they might have simultaneously framed Oswald. The proverbial free-for-all fight in the bar started right up. Metaphorically speaking, of course. It started right up between all the assassination researchers, and for sure, many skeptics went right to work to debunk the idea that someone, anyone, was in that picture, and certainly not a policeman. Remember, there were accounts of men wearing police uniforms that day in the plaza as the crowd rushed up right after the shots were fired. Policemen that perhaps were not in complete uniform, but using a uniform potentially as a disguise. Beverly Oliver just talked about it in the past few episodes, but you don't have to believe her, especially because there are others. And it's not at all far-fetched that such a thing took place, if there was some kind of conspiracy. And then you combine it with the fact that as much as five witnesses stated that on that day, they encountered a person identifying themselves up and around that area as a Secret Service agent when we are sure that no Secret Service agents were stationed there. Well, it certainly starts to get interesting. So, were the perpetrators safely among the crowd from the moment the crowd arrived up on the grassy knoll? This is really beginning to feel like a James Bond episode, isn't it? Mac was an honorable man, and as a researcher, he was generally diligent and seeking of details. On this one, he decided to bring in a photographic researcher and someone who was also interested in the assassination, a man named Jack White. White helped in Mac's initial observations related to the photograph. White actually continued to tinker with the picture for quite some time after the initial assessment, all the way into the mid-1980s, I'm told. Eventually, White put forward a new version enhanced in contrast and brightness, which he claimed revealed the policeman figure in higher clarity. These are moments when I wish this was a video program and not a podcast, because the pictures are sometimes worth more than a thousand words. Like Beverly Oliver's pictures, they are fantastic and, well, maybe too good to be true. 
But White's rendition of Badge Man sure does look like a police officer staring over that fence. (laughs) This may very well be what I described in the prologue. How the image morphed into that, well, it's anyone's guess. But the mental properties of closure must have had something to do with it. Is it real or is it Memorex? As the old saying goes, White's research was juicy enough to be shown and discussed in the 1988 documentary series, The Men Who Killed Kennedy. The series features a close-up of the enhanced badge man figure, and that is the photo that is the picture I am talking about, one that is worth more than a thousand words. The series goes deeply into even more sinister theories about three gunmen, including this one identified in the Mormon photo right up on the knoll, that is, behind the stockade fence, and even goes as far as to identify who the shooter was, advancing a theory that it was Lucien Sarti, a French national and alleged contract killer. All right, go get the popcorn, right? Again, I'll let you be the judge on all of that. You'll just have to watch it to have an opinion on it. Certainly don't just listen to me. At the very least, it's good theater, and there may be some truth in there, too. Mac actually worked with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the Jet Propulsion Lab, and the iTech Corporation, and in the end, all three of these organizations came to a common conclusion that the photograph was just not good enough, really, it was not clear enough or sharp enough, to definitively answer the question. The question of whether or not the badge man figure was really an image of a real person. When this story was used for the men who killed Kennedy, apparently Nigel Turner, who produced the show, engaged with another British photographic expert, Jeffrey Crowley. And his work was represented to have been in support of a figure in the background. Another researcher, Dale Myers, claims to have contacted Crowley and learned that Crowley himself did not support the idea that there was a human figure in that picture. In fact, Myers claims Crowley told him that in 1988, Crowley submitted a two-page written report to Nigel Turner, basically stating that if it was a human being in the picture, and if they were of average height and build, they would have had to have been standing 12 to 18 feet behind the fence line and would also have had to have been elevated 3 to 4 feet off the ground in order to be in juxtaposition relative to what was seen in the photograph. And that, at the end of the day, if that was the position of the individual, then it just wasn't feasible to make a headshot from that position. We know just by the way it was described, it was implausible. And in addition to that, the line of sight would not have worked from that point. That is, that far back and away from the fence, the downward angle toward the president's limousine would have prohibited a shot unless they were up that high. Pure geometry. (laughs) Well, at least some real science beginning to creep into the discussion. As simple and common sense-like as that was. Oh, And they reminded us that Lee Bauer, who was up in the Union Railroad Tower that day, would have seen this had there been two people that far back from the fence. And he did not. Although he did see two unrelated individuals generally in the same area but closer up toward the fence. And he testified to that effect. 
Crowley also determined that the L-shaped concrete retaining wall would also have blocked Badgeman's line of sight at the moment of the fatal shot, had he been that far back. Meyer would also say that he had applied certain science and techniques himself, and in his own review, he had come up with a similar conclusion as Crowley. In the end, Crowley would simply conclude, as explained by Myers, that Mac and White must have misinterpreted the background and foreground elements that make up the original photograph. Lots of research drama here. But wait, there's more. Can you believe it? If you were the shooter behind the picket fence looking down at the motorcade, then to your right, folks looking at the photograph also saw what might have been another figure. Folks in this case also included Mac and White. Thus starts the story of Gordon Arnold. Now we are talking about a person that would have been physically very close to the shooter. Keep that in mind. Arnold is another of those small coterie of witnesses on the grassy knoll that didn't initially get identified or tell his story at the time of the Warren Commission. But by 1978, his story had gotten out and was more widely known. Let me read to you from a story that was written by Earl Goltz and first appeared in the Dallas Times-Herald on August 27, 1978. The next day, it was picked up on the wires and then made its way across the country, and into a few other papers on August 28th. It was one of the first accounts that began to more widely circulate details of this new and intriguing witness, and the idea that he was now potentially identified within the Mormon photo made it even more tantalizing. So here you go. More theater for sure. This is actually the article that appeared in the Victoria Advocate on August 28, 1978, after it had been picked up on the AP wire. It's titled, Secret Service Stories Heard. Let me read the full article to you now, because it's got certain other elements that are interesting to you, I think. The Dallas Morning News said in a copyright story Sunday that at least five people met men who identified themselves as Secret Service agents in Dealey Plaza just before the assassination of President John Kennedy. The Warren Commission report said none of the 28 Secret Service agents protecting Kennedy was on foot at the scene during that time, and the news said all but one of the encounters were in the parking lot near the old Texas School Book Depository, from which the Warren Commission said Lee Harvey Oswald alone fired on the motorcade. Gordon L. Arnold told the news that he was moving toward a railroad bridge over the nearby Triple Underpass to shoot movies of the motorcade when this guy just walked toward me and said, I shouldn't be up there. Arnold was a soldier at the time and now works for the Dallas Department of Consumer Affairs. He was not called by the Warren Commission, and he has not been interviewed by the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Arnold said he challenged the man's authority and was shown a badge told by the man that he was a Secret Service agent. Taking up a position on the grassy knoll adjacent to the depository, Arnold said he felt a shot come from behind him. I'd just gotten out of basic training, Arnold told the newspaper, and in my mind, live ammunition was being fired. It was being fired over my head, and I hit the dirt. Arnold said that the first two shots fired came from behind a fence behind the knoll. 
During a reenactment for acoustic analysis last week, the assassination committee ordered rifle and pistol shots fired from that position as well as from the depository. You don't really hear the whiz of a bullet, Arnold said. You hear just like a shock wave. You feel it. You feel something, and then a report comes right behind it. Arnold said he turned his movie film over to a policeman, but never reported his story to authorities because I heard after that that there were a lot of people making claims about pictures and stuff, and and they were dying sort of peculiarly. Others also told the news that they encountered business-suited men around the area who claimed to be Secret Service agents. Two uniformed Dallas policemen were assigned to guard the railroad bridge, keeping unauthorized persons off the structure. The Warren report, however, said the two officers were not assisted by federal agents. And if there was one Secret Service agent up there, we didn't know it, said Officer James C. White. He wasn't on that bridge. I know that. But a railroad signal supervisor who aided the officers in identifying railroad personnel on the bridge said he thought a plainclothes detective or FBI agent or something like that was helping the officers guard the bridge. About 9.30 or 10 o'clock a.m., Julius Hardy of Dallas was driving a truck on Commerce Street when he noticed three men on the bridge. I looked over on the railroad bridge and I saw three men, Hardy told the news, and I thought I saw two of them carrying guns, long guns. I glanced to my left to check for traffic and then looked back because even in Texas, it's unusual to see people carrying long guns. Now, I can't tell you whether it was rifles, shotguns, or what, but two of them had long guns. Minutes after Arnold's encounter with the agent on his way to the bridge, Mrs. Jean Hill witnessed the assassination. She was only a few feet from the presidential limousine. She saw a man dashing into the parking lot adjacent to the Texas School Book Depository building before other stunned spectators began to rush up the knoll past Arnold, she said. She ran after the man and was met in the parking lot by a tall and slender man in a business suit who whipped out identification, claiming he was a Secret Service agent, Mrs. Hill said. I thought he was trying to get away, she said, but evidently he wanted me to keep from getting away and pursuing the fleeing man. He identified himself, supposedly, and I took it that he was... I just figured they, the Secret Service, were shooting back. She said she lost sight of the running man as he reached the railroad tracks near the triple underpass. Mrs. Hill, now remarried, said agents from the CIA, FBI, and Secret Service interviewed her in the following year and told her that the man she met in the parking lot with the Secret Service identification did not exist under the name she recalled he gave her. She said a man once showed up at her door claiming to be a Secret Service agent and threatened her to stop talking about the parking lot incident. One Dallas Secret Service agent, Elmer Moore, was in San Francisco at the time of the assassination and did not return to Dallas to join the investigation for a week. Okay, 
So let's listen to this story as it unfolded and was told by Gordon Arnold himself in the Men Who Killed Kennedy documentary series. This small area was the scene of an extraordinary encounter. Behind the picket fence, there is a car park, and in 1963, Gordon Arnold was a 22-year-old serviceman, just out of training camp and en route to a posting in Alaska. This is his first film interview. On that particular morning, what happened was I came downtown and I thought there was going to be a parade. So what I did was I parked my vehicle back here in this parking lot, and I intentionally walked to this particular corner because I wanted to take a pictures of the parade off of the railroad bridge. Well, this is about as far as I got because what happened is when I got my leg to about this position, a man came around the corner off the bridge, had a suit on, and he turned around and he told me that I wasn't going to be there. And I guess I was younger and more spunky at that time because I told him you and who else is going to keep me off the bridge. And he pulled out identification card and he said I'm with the CIA and I said well that's enough muscle I'll leave so I turned around and brought my leg back over like this I walked down the fence line here about halfway and I was looking over the fence to see if I could get a good shot of the parade and he come back up and he told me he says I told you to get out of this area and I said okay so I walked the complete length of the fence got around on the other side that's when I started to line up my frame so that I could take the picture of the parade. I had been panning shots through here so that I could get whatever was going to come down the street. And I saw that it was the President of the United States. And as I was panning down this direction, just as I got to about this position, a shot came right past my left ear. And that meant it would have had to have come from this direction. And that's when I fell down. And... To me, it seemed like a second shot was at least fired over my head. It was, there's a bunch of report going on in, the, in this particular area at that time. And what happened was that while I was laying on the ground, it seemed like a gentleman came from this particular direction. And I thought it was a police officer because he had a uniform of a police officer. But he didn't wear a hat. And he had dirty hands. But it didn't really matter much at that time because with him crying like he was and with him shaking when he had the weapon in his hand, I think I'd have gave him almost anything except the camera because that was my mother's. And literally what the man did was kick, kick me and asked me if I was taking a picture. I told him that I was. And when I looked at the weapon, it was about that big around and I decided I'd let him go ahead and have the film. I gave it to him. And then he went back off in this direction. I went off in this direction. And three days later, I was in Alaska. And I didn't come back to the United States for about 18 months. This story, as fantastic as it sounds, well, Gary Mack and Jack White feel strongly that Gordon Arnold is in the Mary Mormon photograph. And while they don't vouch for all the details of Gordon's story, they place him right there at the moment of the fatal shot, and here is what they said during their discussion of it in The Men Who Killed Kennedy. We spent a lot of time studying uh, the picture and looking at little details, and I guess in the back of our minds was a story that had come out four years earlier. 
uh, by a man named Gordon Arnold, who claimed to be a witness to the assassination and claimed to have been standing up by the fence. And there was a light blob of something uh, very close to where Badge Man was. We weren't sure what it was, but gradually as details started coming out with Jack's photo work, we realized that this image was probably Gordon Arnold. And here's a guy who's, who had told his story just to a, an acquaintance and was overheard, and that story went off to the news media, and uh, Gordon Arnold was interviewed, and it appeared in the newspaper uh, that he had been at the scene and was in that location, but no one believed him because there were no uh, photographs or films that showed a man in that position. But all of a sudden, the Mormon picture confirmed his story. And again, the interesting part is that Gordon Arnold's story came out four years before we noticed uh, the appearance of this figure in the Mormon photograph. We later learned that uh, Arnold was wearing uh, this army cap that had a slight uh, point at the top and a medallion on the right-hand side that said U.S. Army, and it's exactly what we see in the photograph. We also know that Gordon Arnold was filming this scene with a movie camera, and that's exactly what the photograph shows because we see the right arm of the person in this position uh, with his hand up toward his face uh, and what appears to be obstructing his face, uh, something perhaps like a movie camera. Okay, you are probably already out of popcorn, right? Well, I'm sorry, but in the old days at the movie theater, they didn't stop the film for you to go to the concession stand. Okay, pause the podcast. Now that's progress, isn't it? Okay, back from that wander to the concession stand. Well, if you didn't think two people in the photo was enough, (laughs) as Gary and Jack continued to stare at that photo, guess what? They saw one more person behind the fence. Another person that was situated behind the fence and in close proximity to the uniformed shooter. Yes, I know. You can't make this stuff up. And remember Lee Bowers? Well, this then conveniently comports with the two people he saw standing along the fence. The two people he saw from his perch in the tower. So here is what Gary and Max said about this third person in the Mary Mormon photograph. What they said in the Two Men Who Killed Kennedy documentary. I was sitting in my office here one day uh, looking at the picture and I saw what just all of a sudden what appeared to be uh, another image standing directly behind uh, the badge man. Uh, This is a appears to be a person in a hard hat and a white T-shirt. The lighting on him is entirely consistent with the lighting on badge man. Uh, In other words, there's a highlight on the uh, construction helmet that he seemed to be wearing. Uh, there's a shadow of his head down on his shoulders, and the, the lighting source is absolutely consistent with the rest of the picture. Uh, he, he appears to be looking off in the direction of the uh, school book depository. It was important in all this work that we develop somehow some independent corroboration for what we were seeing. And one of the important and yet often neglected witnesses in the Kennedy case is a railroad signalman named Lee Bowers, who was working in a railroad tower behind the picket fence and behind the grassy knoll. And he had a good view of the area uh, where we see these figures. And he testified to the Warren Commission and told them that uh, when Kennedy appeared in Dealey Plaza, there were two men behind the fence that he could see. And these two men were uh, in this one position the whole time before, during, and after the shooting. Well, after all of that, I really don't know what to say to you. But I do know one thing. When you come back for episode 42... 
I'll start by making the appropriate comments about the Gordon Arnold story. Until then, well, I'm hungry and it's getting late, so I'm going to go make a sandwich. Thank you for listening to Episode 41 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 